Well, good morning to each one. Greetings in Jesus' name. I enjoyed the Sunday school lesson this morning. Often, when I have looked at that parable, my focus has been on the part of, of rich and poor. But I think this morning I've seen that parable in a new light. And the fact that the thrust there maybe not, may not be so much rich versus poor, but the fact that the rich man and his brothers did not respect God's word. And uh, that thought came out in our lesson today, and I appreciated that thought. You know, if we don't have a respect for God and his word, we're going to get everything wrong in life, including how we spend our money. For a message today, I invite you to Matthew chapter 5. As you may remember, I have been preaching through the Beatitudes. Today we are ready for the last and final Beatitude, Beatitude number 8. This Beatitude is found in verse 10 and expounded on in verse 11 and 12. And so I will read Matthew 5, 10, 11, and 12. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. The title that I chose for this message today is simply, For Righteousness' Sake. The word persecuted, as we find it here, simply means to endure suffering for Christ. It means to be mocked, ridiculed, criticized, slandered, and maybe even martyred for the cause of Christ. Who are the persecuted? Any person who boldly lives and speaks for the righteous cause of Christ and is reacted against. If you look at the Beatitudes as a whole, I believe it is safe to say that if you follow them and are obedient to the progression of the Beatitudes, you will experience some kind of persecution. For an example, if you are poor in spirit, people will think that you are being self-righteous. Mourn and repent over sin, and they'll be offended because they feel convicted. Be meek and humble, and they'll try to push you around and run over you. Hunger and thirst after righteousness, and you'll be labeled as a narrow-minded religious fanatic. Be merciful and watch them laugh and shake their heads in disbelief. Be pure in heart and feel the tension of a world which seeks to satisfy their fleshly lust. Strive to be a peacemaker and be ready for all kinds of ammunition pointed at your direction. Read to them Matthew 5, 10 through 12, the verses that we just read, and watch as they think you've lost your mental capacities. And even though the world may respond in this way, Jesus tells us that we will be blessed 
and that we will discover a supreme happiness if our lives, in our lives, if we do these things. This final beatitude reminds us of the reality of faithfully following and being obedient to the seven previous beatitudes. You will be persecuted. You will be misunderstood. You will be ridiculed, mocked, criticized, slandered. Yet in all this, we can rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. I said earlier that persecution is that, I'm sorry, I said earlier that the persecuted is any person who boldly lives and speaks for the righteous cause of Christ and is reacted against. I believe we see a paradox in godly persecution. A paradox, as you know, is something that seems to contradict, it, contradict itself, such as we must die so that we can live. The paradox that we see in godly persecution reveals that the true nature of the world is evil. You see, the person who strives to live and stand for righteousness is opposed and persecuted. The one who loves and cares for the needs of mankind, the one who has the one and only answer for mankind's problem, is the one that is fought against. This doesn't make sense, but it's true. And so Jesus reminds us that persecution is coming our way, and we should not only expect it, but to be glad and to rejoice. Why? Because persecution is a sign that we are living right for Jesus Christ and his cause. There are six facts that makes this beatitude impossible to ignore. Number one, it is the last beatitude. We talk about uh, famous last words. So number one, it is the last beatitude. Number two, it is the longest beatitude. Three, it is the only beatitude with a command to rejoice. Number four, it is the only beatitude with an explanation. Number five, it is the only beatitude that is repeated by Jesus. And number six, it is the only beatitude addressed directly to the reader. Verse 11, blessed are you, it says, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely, for my sake. I want to begin by considering the persecution that we will endure. The word persecution is repeated three times in this beatitude. We see it in verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. Verse 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you. Verse 12, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And I believe in this we see that Jesus is saying that persecution will come. It will happen. You can bank on it. And don't be surprised if you face it. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. 
We know that the early Christians suffered extreme persecution. During the first century, almost all of Jesus' disciples suffered martyrdom. It is said that thousands upon thousands lost their lives in the first 300 years of Christianity. And even in our world today, persecution is still a present reality to many Christians. In America, Christians are not suffering physical persecution for their faith. However, in some ways we may experience just a greater challenge, not the courage to die for our faith, but the courage to live for our faith. Jesus preached a persecution gospel. America, for the most part, preaches a prosperity gospel that only tickles people's ears. Jesus preached, take up the cross and follow me. Today, modern Christianity preaches, come to Jesus today and get ready to experience an abundance of wealth and health. You can turn to John chapter 15. I'd like to read several verses there. John 15, 18 through 20. Jesus warns his disciples to expect persecution. <clears throat> John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I have chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my word, they will also, they will keep yours also. Jesus tells his disciples to expect persecution. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Paul warns his son in the faith, Timothy, that persecution comes to all those who truly live faithful lives. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. In 1 Peter 4.12, Peter warns believers not to be shocked when they are persecuted. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. And so, throughout Scripture, we have the warning that persecution will come. Expect it. Don't think it's strange if it comes your way. I want to consider now what persecution is and what persecution is not. You know, sometimes there is confusion on what persecution is and what it is not. First of all, there is no promise of blessing anywhere in the Bible for those who are persecuted for being a nuisance or a troublemaker. Suffering that comes to us because we have been offensive, difficult, and insulting to our coworkers and our neighbors is not persecution. It is not being 
persecuted for righteousness' sake. Suffering that comes from trouble that we bring on ourselves is not persecution. Neither is suffering that comes as a result of poor decisions. There is a difference between being persecuted for wrongdoing and being persecuted for righteousness' sake. 1 Peter 4, verse 15 brings that out. It says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. And so, beware, not everyone that claims to be persecuted is actually undergoing persecution. Some are simply suffering the consequences of their own foolishness. I believe that one of the keys to understanding what persecution is, is found in the word righteousness. Matthew 6, if you would turn there, I believe this is an important verse as we think about what persecution is and what it is not. Matthew 6, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Did you see that? His righteousness. Not our righteousness, but his righteousness. There is a big difference between our righteousness and his righteousness. You may remember the, uh, not the parable, but the beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. In that message, I said this, that true righteousness will always sync with the word of God. True righteousness will always sync with God and his actions. One crucial word that we must recognize is the word falsely. The word falsely is crucial because it defines the difference between being persecuted for righteousness sake and suffering because of trouble that we have brought on ourselves. And I have a quote here that I, that I, um, that blessed me and helped me understand the difference between true and false persecution. It says, if I get in trouble because I talk too much or because I meddle or because I try to force my faith on other people, that is not persecution. If I'm promoting my own cause and men reject me, that is not persecution. If I'm arrogant and abusive in my attempt to witness for Christ and people want nothing to do with me, that is not persecution. But if I seek to do his will and honor his name and I suffer, then that is persecution. End quote. And so now I would like to consider the promise for the persecuted along with the command to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you notice that Jesus does not say theirs will be the kingdom of heaven, but rather says theirs is the kingdom of God or of heaven, which simply means it's right now. This is a promise that is not just for future, but for right now. 
As one suffers, as they stand for Christ, they get the kingdom of God now. It's a present blessing. And 1 Peter brings that out in 4, verse 14. If you want to turn there, you can. But it says, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. You see, when we suffer for his name, we get the power of God now. We get the provision of God now. We get the protection of God now. The spirit of God resteth upon you. That is why we can do verse 12. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. To rejoice and be exceedingly glad is not a suggestion. It is a command. If persecution for righteousness' sake does come our way, we are commanded to, be, to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. We are not to retaliate. We are not to sulk like a child. We are not to lick our wounds and self-pity. We are not called to just grin and bear it. We are called to rejoice and be exceedingly glad, which literally means to skip and hop with excitement. And while this all sounds so wonderful, how exactly does a Christian rejoice in persecution? What are things which we can know that will allow rejoicing in persecution? Is this really true? I mean, can this really be a reality that we can rejoice in persecution, that we can rejoice when suffering comes our way? I have five reasons for rejoicing in persecution. Number one, we can rejoice in persecution because we know that it is a demonstration of our identity. The point of the last part of verse 12, for so persecuted they, the prophets which were before you, is that persecution identifies us as part of the faith. I have another insert here that I'd like to read. Few men have understood this better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor in prison during World War II for his stand against Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. He was executed by the direct order of Henrik Himmler in April 1949 in Flossenburg, concentration camp only a few days before it was liberated. While in prison, he wrote, suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means suffering because we have to suffer. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ and it's therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy 
and token of his grace. And that is coming from a man who was treated very cruelly in prison. And so if God brings suffering our way, if he brings persecution our way, I believe that he will give us the power and the strength to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. When the church was persecuted in the book of Acts, Acts 5.41 says that when they were released, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. You see, suffering, persecution identifies us as being part of the faith. Luke 6.35, but love you... Let me try again. But love ye your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great. And look at this, the identification. And ye shall be called children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Persecution is a demonstration of our identity. Number two. We can rejoice in persecution because we know that God uses persecution to refine us. And you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'd like to read 6 through 8. 1 Peter 1 verse 6. And this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it is tested by fire, may be found in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen you love, though now you, though now you do not see him, you believe, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, and full of glory. Talks about the various trials. I think we all know about various trials. And it talks about coming forth as gold. I believe Peter is saying that persecution is the furnace in which God refines us and purifies us. The furnace of persecution, the furnace of suffering, removes the impurities from our lives. James 1, 2, 3, and 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God uses persecution to refine us. The third point that I have is we can rejoice in persecution because we know that it gives us the opportunity to show the difference that Christ makes in a person's life. Think about it. If everything is going well with you and you rejoice, what makes you any different from all the non-Christians 
around you. You know, if everything's going our way, if we never face any trials, if we never face any persecution, how is the world going to see that there's anything different about us than anyone else? 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Persecution, trials, suffering gives us or gives the opportunity to show the difference that Christ makes in our lives. To show the light, to show the light that God has shined in us. We can rejoice, number four, we can rejoice in persecution because we know the promise of rewards. The promise of verse 12 is rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Jesus promised that the reward for the faithful is great, which means not just great like we use the word great, but immeasurably great. Some would say that a Christian should serve God for more than just the promised reward at the end of life. I'm sure you've heard that, and I know there's a point to that, but is that true? I'll let you decide. I have some verses here that I'd like to read. But, but should a Christian serve God for just more, for more than just the promised reward at the end of life? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, he said, If in this life only we had hope in Christ, we are, of all men, most miserable. Paul also wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, he said, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Paul had something that he was looking forward to, and, that, and what he was looking forward to, I believe, was spurring him on in his Christian life. Jesus' words to the persecuted Smyrna church of Revelation 2 was, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. The Hebrew writer tells us that Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And it says in Hebrews 11 verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. I believe for great is your reward in heaven is a real good reason to serve the Lord. I also believe that Jesus is reminding us here in this beatitude that we must determine our values from a perspective of eternity. The Apostle Paul brought, brings this thought out in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. You can turn there if you like. 
as we think about determining our values from a perspective of eternity. Notice what he says, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceedingly and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Yes, we can rejoice in persecution because we know the promise of great reward. The fifth point, we can rejoice in persecution because we know that Jesus is near when we are suffering. 1 Peter 5, verse 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. God cares for you. God cares for you. He cares about your situation. He cares about your suffering. He cares about what you're going through. And you know, I know you believe that God cares for others. Uh, we all believe that, and we'll say that. But do you really believe that God cares for you and that he cares about your situation and your persecution and your suffering? You know, it's so easy to tell someone else that God cares for you, but to believe that God cares for me, that takes faith. But this morning, God does care for you. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament tells us that when God's people were in bondage and suffering, God was mindful of them. He cared for them. He cared about their situation. And you can turn to Exodus chapter 2. I like to read 23 and 24. But the fact, what I want to show you here is that when we are suffering, when you are suffering, God cares and that he sees it. And so the situation in Exodus chapter 2 is the people are in bondage in Egypt. And notice what it says in Exodus 2, 23 and 24. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. Verse 24, so God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. You see, God cares for you. God cares for us. He is near when we are suffering. And then moving on to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 10. Here again, we find the children of Israel, they're suffering, and they're suffering now because of sin. And it says in Judges 10, verse 15, And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. 
Verse 16, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. You see, God is always present when his people are hurting and suffering. Why? Because he careth for you. Think of the story of the courage of the three Hebrew young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were cast into the fiery furnace for their faith in God. Yet, when the king looked into the flames, he asked, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? I see four men loose and walking in the midst of the fire, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. The angel that stood in the midst of the fire with the three Hebrew boys was none other than Jesus Christ of today. And today we have his promise in Matthew 28, verse 20. It's found in the Great Commission and that promise is, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. We'll call for a closing song.